Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week, my headline news is more of an instruction than news. And the instruction is, you have a vote. Get out and use it. And... Okay, a bit back to headline news now. Office for National Statistics this week showed that the economy flatlined month on month in October after two months of declines, and it's been the weakest three months since early 2009. And also, um, the demand for festive food is lagging behind last year's levels, with sales of Christmas puddings, tins of biscuits and other seasonal specials down so far. And sales of puddings and biscuits are down 16 and 12% respectively in the past four weeks compared with this time last year. Do you think that's... We can't just be... We're not all on a diet already, are we? <laughs> Maybe people just aren't feeling festive yet with all this. Well, I have to admit, I'm not feeling stuff going on. festive. You're not feeling festive. However, you are dressed as Santa. I point this out to the dear listener. Heather is dressed as Santa. But that's because of a prior engagement where it yeah, was yeah, I necessary for me to be dressed as Santa. <laughs> you're, you're always in fancy dress. <laughs> and Thanks now, for noticing. <laughs> she hasn't got the beard. No, no. Well, no, no. I work hard not to have the beard. <laughs> so this week we thought we'd do something completely um, not politics related not the b word related nothing to do with the economy directly um, and this is to look at a buzzword which is reg tech yawn sorry heather I, I thought it was when you said when you said i was like oh, okay you, you, <laughs> you made the mistake um, so what we we uh, we do plan this show in advance and uh, you might be surprised to know and heather gave me a whole list of things plus an article which included RegTech, and she said, your choice. Yes. So it's your own fault. She chose the worst possible thing. <laughs> anyway, so Reg you Tech, find it fascinating and that's all that matters. Yeah. Well, one, one of my roles, um, so my background is as an auditor and one of my roles is um, as a non-exec for a financial institution and another role is compliance. So sort of tied up to this. Also, I'm a bit of an IT person too. So this RegTech is the management of the regulatory process within the financial services industry, mainly using technology. So it can be regulatory monitoring, reporting and compliance. And it's really been brought about um, sort of on the back of fintechs. And we've talked about fintech and that's a, the financial services revolution, really. It's the, the disruption of financial services by these technology companies. And we've got a rise of digital products, which have seen... Um, Go alongside it, a rise in data breaches and cyber hacks and money laundering. And these um, financial services companies have to regulate them. They have to be compliant with all the regulations, which did step up anyway after the credit crunch in 2008. So as well as there being a whole load more digital products coming in to disrupt the market, regulations tightened up in 2008. And so RegTech is this industry that is looking to reduce the risk of a company's compliance by actually dealing with the data and doing the stuff that computers do really well. Things that the traditional um, compliance department would be sort of number crunching. It's sort of doing the donkey work and actually crunching through all those num numbers, looking for money laundering flags, doing customer due diligence and 
sort of taking the bits that computers do best and, and allowing humans to the, do the bits that they do best. Because I suppose once you automate something and, and you get computers doing it, they're not going to miss anything because they're just going to be doing it. Whereas if a human was doing it, not only would it be time consuming and very laborious, but there would be the potential for human error or a trend, a human to see a trend and then decide it's not worth, whereas the computer is told to look for these trends and will flag them up. Yeah. Won't, it won't decide, oh, yeah, we don't need to worry about that one. Okay, all right. So th there is a whole industry, um, and Deloitte, I went to have a look at um, a big accounting firm but does so much more now and uh, they, they've got a website uh, which talks about um, the universe of reg tech and uh, it, it's quite interesting because they use quite a lot of graphics to explain it and and um, one of the pictures that struck me was the uh, the cities with the highest number of reg tech startups now one of the stats i understand is that it's an industry that's in its infancy and the majority of the companies, over 50% of reg tech companies are startups. But the cities with the highest number are Silicon Valley, which is not surprising, mm -hmm. New York and London. And closely behind them come Dublin and Luxembourg. Oh. So it's, um, it's moving quite quickly at the moment. But I think it's important to notice that regulation is also trying to keep a pace it's trying to keep up. I was saying to Heather before we came on the show that um, I've opened a new business bank account. We talked about it a little while ago. We discovered them at the Festival of Enterprise, and it's called Tide. And it, it's, um, it's an app. Uh, it's a banking app. And it enabled me to open a business bank account within, they said five minutes. It took me a little longer than that, but it was certainly within the hour. And all of that was enabled by this automation that went through and did all of the checking because there is still regulation, even if it's a, an app, there's still all of the anti-money laundering checks they have to do and customer due diligence that they have to do. But presumably in order to do it in the speed that they could open the bank account within minutes, it must have been automated. So that oh. must be using these um, financial um, reg tech apps and, and it must be software because anybody who's trying to open a business bank account manually you know, manually yeah i mean i'm involved with an organization where we set up one and we lost the will to live and just totally abandoned the whole thing and started again with another bank because it was it was so painful uh, and i think that one of the benefits of of of, of reg tech is is this joined up approach because as human, we have to weigh up, don't we? We demand things to happen very instantly. We want everything to happen quickly now. It's kind of like, well, you know, I've already got an account with you. Why can't you just do this? Why can't you just do that? So where... There's probably a really good regulation that stops them doing Yes, that. exactly. Yeah. But but where things can be joined up and using that, that tied account as an example, you know, everything will have, all the due diligence will have had to have happened they're not bypassing, so it's happening through RegTech, and and we like it. Yes. Well, we like to have the development of, you know, the, the tech that's enabling um, the, all of these new companies to service the customers' demands, which are ever-increasing, at the same time as compliance is ever-increasing. So this RegTech is the glue between the two the disruption of the financial services industry and the ballooning of the regulations that are needed. In, in a, 
the sort of the regulations are starting to be global as well. The, the world isn't just regionalized, and so regulation is 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 more international. So these reg tech companies are, are having to consider global regulations. And I can assure you that regulations are very different in lots of different countries and their approach to regulation is very different. So it's no mean feat. I've got some figures for you on the number of companies. So I don't know how old this article from Deloitte was, um, but it was very pretty. It's got a picture of the solar system representing the reg tech companies. Uh, at the time of publishing this, they, they reckon there were 347 reg tech companies. Um, 47 involved in regulatory reporting, 48 in risk management, 83 in identity management and control, um, 141 in compliance and 28 in transaction monitoring. But I see that as there's still a lot of potential in that sector. There's, you know, there's, it's mainly startup companies that, and the sector is changing and moving. That I think it's a really interesting area if you are involved in IT to, to consider going down. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about um, computer software, and you know whether, as part of this, there are emerging other types of software, or whether the, are these companies using existing software and and using it in different ways, or you know, is there a whole new wave of of new stuff that um, that's coming on board that people in terms of skill sets you know they need to acquire the skills and the knowledge and the capabilities or is it applying old skills to a new way of thinking yeah I, I guess it's all of those as well I'm, I'm imagining as well that they they're looking for innovative ways to do things you know that have been, always been done that way or maybe even to do things that never even considered that you needed mm. you know is it 15 years ago, you wouldn't have considered that you're going to need all of these these things to manage fintech companies. We were talking um, a few weeks ago about San Francisco, of actually um, the, the city of San Francisco have come up with a department to just keep up with the demands of the innovation that's happening. You know, so how can they manage and control robots delivering things down the streets? And mm. because they, they don't know what to expect. So I, th I think it's it's evolving and emerging, and somebody will come up with something that you never even knew you needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the moment, RegTech, it's looking at ways to actually be compliant within the regulations that we've got, and allow technology to grow while still remaining re um, compliant with the regulations. Well, I do feel that as a result of this discussion, that. When I read the word RegTech in any articles now, <laughs> I will at least know what the hell it is rather than just think, oh, yeah, that's something. Well, I'm glad to be of yeah. service, Heather. OK, on to some other news that we've spotted this week. I saw an article in Management Today where they've revealed Britain's most admired leaders for 2019 as voted for by you. Uh, and I'm taking they mean as voted for by the readers of Management Today. Um and there's three people. Um, one person's name I've recognised and the other two I'm, I'm guessing we need to profile at some point next year. Ooh. So number one, top of the list, Emma Walmsley, the CEO of GSK. And she was nominated to the board of Microsoft this year as well. So she's had a good year. And she was also named one of the most powerful businesswomen in the world by Fortune. She also became the highest paid female in the FTSE 100 with a total pay and bonus package of nearly £6 million. 
and it's the second year running that she's been voted Britain's most admired leader. And I'd never heard of her. No. So we're going to profile her yes. next. Find out what her time. management style is, her leadership style is. Uh, I, I had a brief look and she's described as scary. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so that'll be interesting. Yes, yeah, she's feared, but and she's admired. respected. Yeah, admired respect. yeah, and, yeah, and okay. feared. And then number two on the list is Lord Simon Wolfson, the CEO of Next. He's run Next since 2001. And um, Next is booking the trend with the high street. So we do a lot of um, sad stories about companies failing on the high street. And actually, uh, Next is has um, held its ground. So whereas Debenhams and Patisserie Valerie and Mother Care have, have collapsed this year, Next is doing well. So that's Simon Wolfson, the CEO of Next. And number three on the list is Sir James Dyson. Um, I don't really need to... Um, talk about him too much he's the founder of Dyson mm. and, and he's already well known we've already talked about him so Emma Walmsley's top of the list we'll, we shall do her at some point and uh, maybe touch on to um, the, the head of Next as well next year so that's giving you advance warning mm. really the other article I saw this is gossip really but I, because it, the person involved in the gossip is a businessman I felt it, it valid to mention it and also the article was in the Times so, okay, so it's, yeah, it's credible found, gossip. Yeah, it's yep. credible. So apparently one of Britain's wealthiest men has been investigated by the police over a former employee's allegations. Um, they've launched an investigation into allegations of rape and sexual assault against a multimillionaire tycoon who can only be referred to as Mr X. Mr Why? X. Um, apparently, according to the Times, so this is pure gossip but it's from the times so i don't feel bad about it um mr x has extensive establishment connections and is one of britain's wealthiest men married with adult children has homes in london the countryside and overseas and according to the judge in the case is a public figure with a well-known family name now this all came about because a couple of years ago there was a legal battle and a couple of former employees of Mr X had accepted a significant out-of-court settlement and signed non-disclosure agreements that prohibited them from talking about the case. However, it appears that the terms of the non-disclosure agreement did not prohibit them from making a criminal complaint. And so that's how this has happened. Now one of the women has done that and has actually made a criminal complaint to the police who have to investigate the claims of sexual assault and rape. Mr X has, of course, denied any wrongdoing. So there we go. Mm. I don't know, but that's, that's something to keep an eye on in the news. And uh, you can only hazard a guess at who Mr X might be. That's oh. your oh. festive entertainment. Oh, yes. Gosh. Okay, Heather, what, what have you found in the news? Well, I found a story that, um, on the face of it, you think, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's sad that somebody at the age of 94 has passed away. Um, but then when you find out that they are one of the co-inventors of the barcode, yes, you know, those little black and white stripes that exist on pretty much everything that we buy these days. Um, and there are people who have had barcodes tattooed onto their skin. Um, uh, it caught my eye, and I thought, "Oh yeah, okay. Let's let's see." I suppose it's one of those things that it's just so ubiquitous that you don't even consider it's got an inventor. But of course, it has. Yeah. yeah. And not only is it is it is he one of the inventors, but originally 
um, there was a guy who who decided that this was something that could work, but devised it in a circular format. Oh. And um, he it, he was um, basically he was just he was drawing in the sand these sort of circles and thought oh a bit like Morse code so you know this could this could work but it didn't actually work he couldn't get it to work but George Laura the gentleman who has just died he knew about this and took it to the next step and and, and was able to make it work by making it a rectangle now I don't know the intricacies as to why a circle doesn't work and a rectangle does um, but uh, you can go online and you can get a bu- you can order a barcode you can buy a barcode for for anything you just tell them what the thing is and they will generate a unique barcode and uh, I've done that for you know for you barcode your husband it wasn't my husband actually but I suppose I could <laughs> it was a magazine but um and 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 not only was it um was it generated but you would it would then be generated for each issue so it's it's a fascinating thing amazing amazing but we think of it as something that's you know fairly well we take it for granted yeah but we think of it as something fairly modern well the guy who was first thinking of doing it started thinking about it in 1948 Uh, so that's a very very long time ago and in 1969 uh, no no sorry in 1974 the first product sold with a barcode uh, went on sale and do you know what it was not got a clue wrigley's chewing gum do you remember those tiny little packs of um pk chewing gum like you know wrigley's is normally yeah, in long strips. long strips do you remember the little almost square box um packets that had like five sugar-coated strips of um Chewing not, gum in? Not really, no. But they well, were anyway, barcoded. That, they? they were they were the first barcoded thing. Yeah. So but, uh, and I remember one of my first shop jobs when I was at um, college um, was working for a uh, super drug, and uh, I, I worked on the till occasionally, and we had to punch in the numbers, and I so wanted to work in a shop that had a barcode had the scanner. scanner. Yes, yeah. uh, exactly because and and the um, because this guy's died you know lots of articles about the barcode and actually the biggest challenge was redesigning the packaging to include the barcode but also then getting the retailers to adopt the technology that was needed to scan the barcode and i can actually remember when barcodes started appearing on products we would say what are these for because people were still typing in the numbers so you weren't seeing any it's kind of like what's the point of this until the investment um came through where people were willing to buy buy the technology that would speed up the process. And now when you go to a supermarket now, the throughput is, you know, I mean, it's so fast when it's busy. Um, because A, we don't like queuing very long, and B, the barcode is actually speeding things up for us. So there's... L- and nobody's having to go around with the um, price gun. Yeah. That was another one of my absolutely. jobs. You have to stick the price on something with the absolutely. price gun. Absolutely, absolutely. Although I can't like a price gun. I, the, oh, there's something very... Oh, no, you don't do it like that. You do... do, 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 do the faster... Oh, the better. Oh, yeah. Faster, the better. <laughs> I bet Superdrug wish they employed you and not me. <laughs> In the discovery section this week, I've got something that um, 
that demonstrates the way that my mind works in that oh I, dear i know it's bad <laughs> it's 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 pretty bad um when i when i saw the story of the gentleman who died the co-inventor of the barcode i then ended up going down this whole rabbit hole um because there was an article about the invention of the barcode and then okay what was that and what was that connected to i love a good rabbit hole oh it was it was fantastic and so i ended up on a bbc on the bbc website um where they there are a series of episodes of programs um 50 things that made the modern economy okay barcode is one okay the sewing machine is one the punch card is another um wedgwood uh, a turnstile, GPS, <laughs> a and punch card, it, but, and GPS. I'm catching up yet. Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, the postage stamp, um, blockchain, uh, all sorts of things. So, who's decided these things? Well, I don't really know who's decided, but they've made a series of documentaries about them, um, and I just, I just think it's. Fascinating. The postage stamp, for example. It was a disgruntled customer who revolutionised the postal service. And that was um, uh, Lord Rowland Hill. Um, if anybody's ever been to Shrewsbury and seen the column with uh, Lord Hill on the top oh, of it, he invented the, the penny black postage stamp. Anyway, um, it's it's just one of those. They're, they're short, but they're, they're interesting. And they're things that you didn't know you needed to know, but they are all pertinent and relevant to the modern economy. And that's why um, the wheels of industry go round. So that's my discovery. Uh, so where can you see those documentaries? Uh, just on the bbc.co.uk website. I will put a link. Um, they're viewable through the iPlayer. But um, I'll put a link on our website, the business community, along with uh, all of the things that we talk about in today's show. Okay, what so have you mine, discovered it's a report uh, conducted by one poll, commissioned by Zero, the, the accounting software mm -hmm. company, and it's looking at um, new technology and trends that are changing the way we work. And the report is called Business Rewired. It's free from Zero's website, and. They interviewed small business owners and talked to futurist author. Gerd Leonard and Sunday Times columnist, business author and broadcaster Emma Gannon, who we've mentioned on the show in the past, looking at exploring current trends that businesses should embrace and prepare for and so that they can thrive in the future. So this was conducted by a company called OnePole, as I said, with 500 business decision makers from SMEs and it was published in October, just gone. And it covers, the full report covers 10 trends in detail. And it's nicely laid out report. I've, I've downloaded it and, and had a good look. Um, and it's got nice little um, takeaways as well. So the um, little picture with a, a stat next to it. So, for example, 85% of the jobs that will exist in 2030 haven't been invented yet. And 5% of the jobs that exist today consist of activities that are fully automatable. As we were talking about mm -hmm. at the top yeah. of the show. Yeah. So um, some of the things that they've covered, the trends that you need to be aware of, and there's some detail in there and stats with each of them. Um, end of routine, finding purpose, connected everything, a blended workforce, 
Um, end of late payments. Um, human interaction, life work balance, not work life balance. I like that. Life work balance. Yeah. Subtle change of yeah. order yeah. of words. Yeah. Digital assistance, nature and nurture, and from ego to eco. So, um, end of routine, it's looking at the acceleration of the adoption of AI and automating process driven tasks. And it results in greater job satisfaction and will force businesses to alter their hiring strategies. Obviously, uh, end of late payments is an interesting one because we've got the technology now. So most invoicing and payments will be handled by software and digital assistance. So why have the 30 day? Uh, why, need, why do you need to wait 30 days to pay an invoice? Obviously, unless you've got cash flow issues, um, but the the research that they did show that um, that that companies see that the thirty day invoicing per um, cycle is outdated and needs to change. And if you're going to invoice automatically with zero, if you're connected as well, you can take payment automatically. Mm. So mm. it's interesting. As long as people want to like, actually the money. want to pay, it. like say if they haven't got cash flow issues mm. or. Or any problem with the account. Um, finding purpose, we've talked about previously, has been really important, particularly to this group that's called millennials. But I think it, it will apply to everybody, really. Um, and in this survey, 43% of small business owners prioritise business purpose over profits. That's higher than I thought. Mm. So m maybe you find that small business are actually focusing more on purpose than the bigger business. Um then we're looking at 28% um, of small businesses are still saying they're affected by poor internet access. And uh, a large number would actually consider moving to improve their internet access. So that's, uh, that's, that's not an easy decision to make that. But no. you know, if you think your internet access isn't going to get better, then is your, is your only option to move. Because it, to move a business is a brave thing to do. And so you, the internet capability must be a major issue for you to, to make such a radical yeah. change. Wow. And connected to some of the conversations we've had on the show over the last few weeks, the blended workforce trend is, is looking at freelance economy and the, the challenge of um, the convention of a career. And 60% uh, of small business owners believe that a job for life is a dead concept. And the, the thinking here in this report is that it won't make sense to be working with the same 30 people sitting in the same office as you, but you'll be collaborating with contractors and specialists from around the world. And you'll be looking to recruit and hire talent from a, a more diverse pool than you currently have. So it, it's an interesting report. It's not, in, it's not loads of words. There's pictures, there's, there's um, quotes from the people they've spoken to. Uh, I think it's really worth having a read of um, just because, you know, some, you're getting the views of other people in SMEs. They, we're not just talking big business here. These are um, decision makers in companies like yours that are changing the way they think and, and that, that even thinking, you know, 33% of the entrepreneurs interviewed are considering cutting down work hours and making that a priority. So it does become life work instead of work-life mm -hmm. balance. So as Heather said, that will go into our blog with a link to where you can get that. Uh, and I should also wanted to mention um, the ICO have 
just um, published a SME web hub as well. So if you're a small, medium um, business and you're um, concerned about compliance with GDPR, they've pulled together a number of resources that are specifically for the small, medium enterprise. And they've, they've called it the SME Web Hub. And if you go and have a look at that, it, it guides you through from an overview to checklists to do all sorts of useful resources that are particular to you. So we'll put the link for that one on our website as well. This week, we're profiling a gentleman who I'd not heard of before. And I, having done the research, I've been kicking myself and wondering what rock I've been hiding under to not have heard of him. I, I must have, um, I've clearly missed a biggie here. Professor Carrie Cooper. Is that right? As in Carrie Grant? I think he's... Is Carrie? He, is, it's Carrie, yes. Carrie. Uh, but I think he, is he Sir Professor or is he Professor? He's Professor... Sir Carrie Cooper, oh, right. CBE. Apologies. No, no, only because you never know which way. I would have put the sir at the beginning, yeah, which is the... Yeah. But anyway. I like Professor, personally. Yeah, yeah, and he very much is. Professor. Okay, so um, he is an amazingly interested man. Um, but to give you the local interest, in 2017, he was awarded an honorary Doctor of Science by the University of Chester. And um, he's got a BSc, uh, MBA and a PhD. And he's got a bibliography as long as your arm. And um, yes, he was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in the 2001 Honours and was knighted in 2014 Birthday Honours for Services to Social Science. Heather, so I'd miss this guy. I don't know how, but let, let's put that aside now. Now I know who he is. And I know that now I need to read some of his books. So how did he first come into your awareness? Or has he always just been there? No, no. Uh, no. He first came into my awareness when I was working for Best Companies to Work For. And we were devising um, our new methodology. And we were doing, uh, we did what we called a pointy hat meeting, where we pulled together lots of workplace psychologists and people who um, had a lot of knowledge and expertise about what makes somewhere um, a good you know, a good place to work. And um, whilst we didn't, um, we weren't able to use Sir Carey, um, he wasn't a Sir at the time, Professor Carey, um, at, at the time, um, he did review some of the work that we did. So he came onto my radar then um, and... He, he's up there. He ranks up there with Ernesto Siroli for me, and he's only in Manchester too. So Ernesto is just out of reach. He's, yeah, he's, 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 yeah. But you could actually go and see him speak. Yes, and you, he did speak. Yeah, and one week, of the reasons yeah. why we're profiling him this week of of all weeks is that um, a, a friend of mine um, who is heavily involved with the CIPD um, attended a function, and he he does a lot of work with the CIPD, and uh, he was um, the speaker, and um, she was telling me uh, that um, that. Normally, he you know he'll he'll attend meetings and he'll you know give his professional input etc cetera, etc, cetera. but he actually stood and talked about his life, and he has um, and his personal life and he doesn't disclose an awful lot about that. So I thought that that was for the fifty people that were were in the room that was a real generous thing to do because if somebody's actually given of themselves, um, so I thought that was lovely. Yeah, because often with the, with a celebrity business guru. You get the same speech you wherever you go. Don't yeah, you? yeah, 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 yeah. So I thought that was lovely. Um, and in fact, if you watch interviews or listen to interviews with him, 
he knows his stuff. His stuff is his thing, workplace well-being, workplace psychology. Um, you know, well-being at work is a massive subject. We've talked about it a lot. We, we both feel very strongly that, um, that, you know, work should be a safe and um, nurturing environment as much as is humanly possible. Um, and, and, and he believes that. So, of course, a lot of what he's going to be saying is going to be similar. But um, he was born, um, his parents were Jewish. Uh, one was from Romain, Romania and one was from UK, Ukraine. And they both fl um, fled to the United States independently of one another, married um, and uh, had, obviously had um, Carrie. Now, I think his mother had previous relationships and previous children. So his home life was a little bit blended blended and I think he has some half siblings that he doesn't see and the gist of it was that you know it wasn't all it wasn't all plain sailing at home um, but he learned that you know if you're nice to people and if you're good to people um, and if you treat people well then they become the best that they can be uh, he became a British citizen in 1993 and you only have to hear him speak He's, he was born in 1940 um, you only have to hear him speak to just know how passionate he is about people and business and that the two should support one another people will help the business and business can help people yeah, one of the um, threads i pulled on was the, the organization that, that he co-founded robertson cooper yep. uh, so a team of business psychologists and well-being experts and they say in their um, about us section that they're passionate about creating good days at work for everyone everywhere and they've actually done research to define what is a good day at work for people in the UK. But I watched a short video. It is on YouTube. And he, he talked briefly about this um, good, good Days at Work project. But one of the things that really stood out for me is he said you should ask your people what would make your organisation a good place to work. It's such a simple, such an obvious thing. But ask them. You know, you you could read this report, which defines what is a good day at work for people in the UK. But what about your people in your place of work? Listen to them rather than assuming you know what would make a good place, a good day at work for them. And he talks a lot about n actually knowing the members of your team, because if you don't know them as people, how can you get the best out of them? How can you anticipate when things might be falling apart in their world? How can you recognise when they are stressed, uh, when they're uh, underperforming, when they're overperforming? You, you need to know what makes yeah. these people tick and then how do you motivate them? Um, which I would say that, wouldn't I? Because, you know, that's that's part of what I... That's why we've been harping on about it for the last well, two years. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's, part of the, it's part of what I think is the best thing for business. Treat your people well, you'll get the best out of your people and that your business will benefit. So I also had a look at some of the books. I only very briefly skimmed them, but decided that a few of them have immediately gone on my wish list. And one is called Myths of Management. Okay. So there are 44 myths. <laughs> really made me smile because myth number 44 is there are only 44 things to get wrong. Ah, yeah, very clever. <laughs> um, and then in the appendices, they've got um, fireside chats with prominent management thinkers. 
and uh, a couple of them we recognise from from our profiles as well. So one was Charles Handy, one's Tom Peters, um, and there's a few uh, Henry Minsberg, and there's a few that actually maybe we should profile as well, Heather. So another one, another few to add to the list there. But the most recent book that I saw um, available uh, was called The Apology Impulse. This one looks really fascinating, and the subtitle is How the Business World Ruins Sorry and Why We Can't Stop Saying It. And it says that saying sorry is in crisis. On the one hand, there's the anxious PR aficionados and social media teams dishing out apologies with alarming frequency. And on the other, there are people and organisations that have done truly terrible things, issuing much delayed statements of mild regret. Mm. And it says we've become addicted to apologies, but immune from saying sorry. And so this is... This book, The Apology Impulse, is described as a playbook for anyone from social media through to online influencers and CEOs who apologise too much but say sorry far too infrequently. Mm. That one's gone on to my mm. wish list. Very good. A, a, a book that um, that was published earlier this year, given that well-being at work is, is such a massive and topical subject at the moment um there's a book that he's co-written it's a cipd book co-written with a guy called ian hesketh and it's called well-being at work how to design implement and evaluate an effective strategy that goes back to what you were saying what works for your business and how do you put something in place for your staff excellent well we're at the end of this show and we do hope that you'll uh, Join us again next week. In the meantime, go and have a look at our website. We've got the chat splat feature where me and Heather challenge ourselves to only talk for 10 minutes and then shut up. And it's with a subject that we just pluck from the air. At the moment, we press record. And also, we've got all of these shows right the way back to episode number one. We're coming up to two years, Heather. I know. Uh, They're all there without the music for copyright reasons, but in a neat, handy, portable little podcast format that you can carry in your pocket. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Business.